This is Jean Johnson, clarinetist, and you're listening to GMI. Guitar Music Institute, podcast episode number 43. My name is Jed Brocky and today I'm going to carry on the podcast series by talking to a lady of immense talent, a clarinetist named Jean Johnson. Jean is originally from Massachusetts, but settled in Scotland some time ago and has carved out a quite amazing career as a top flight clarinetist who is actually busy all around the world, all over Europe and America, and indeed in the Far East. You're really going to love listening to her story. This podcast is really about lockdown, but we'll leave that to the end and how it has affected Jean and the classical world in particular. I'm really looking forward to this episode because there's not enough women on this podcast. It's something that I'm trying to rectify. Just by listening to this podcast, you can come over to the gmiguitarshop.com and get 15% off any of the products. All you need to do is to put in the code GMI, capital letters, GMI, 01, GMI 01. Now some people have been putting in GM101 and not getting their 15% discount, so just be careful about that. Best to copy it off the webpage. It's on every single podcast webpage at the Guitar Music Institute website. Here comes that interview with clarinetist Jean Johnson. Jean Johnson. Well, it's not often we get brains and beauty, and you've got both of those things. I don't know what I'm bringing to the party. It's great <laughs> to see you, Jean. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you too, Jen. Well, yes, and unfortunately they can't see you if they're listening uh, on iTunes, but they will see you if they come to the GMI website. Uh, so hopefully they will, because I'm going to have loads of stuff up there with all your projects and everything. Oh, excellent. I even got out of my day pyjamas for this, so... Uh, well, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and into something presentable, I should... That's going to be one of those interviews, is it? Right, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited about this one, not only because of what you've done. To be frank, I don't get very many women on this. <laughs> <laughs> You'll do. No, it's not a case of you'll do. I've just been looking at your resume and it's eye-wateringly good. You've played with the Bergen Philharmonic, the Scottish Chamber, the BBC Scottish Symphony, and so it goes on and on and on and on. How on earth did all this happen? You're here in Scotland, you come from America. Was it Massachusetts you're from? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I love it there. Tell us yeah. your story. We're, we're, I'm trying to go on this theme of people's journey. We're all about journeys, so all right. what's your journey? Oh boy, well, <laughs> um, I was brought up in a little town in western Massachusetts, rural, rural little town, old mill town. A mill town, I thought it would be mining, I knew it would start with an M. Actually, it was, it was a hive of industry once upon a time, it was the home of uh, Minute Tapioca and New Home Sewing Machine and uh, Slencil Pencils, a a any American would know those companies if you go in the 70s. So um, once upon a time it was a hive of industry and then it wasn't, <laughs> and then it wasn't, it just, it's, it's somewhere you should just keep on driving past, no, I, I, I shouldn't say that, well, but anyway. Well, it's funny because I remember watching a program on the south of America and it's where all the coal mines are and it's mm. exactly the same scenario these little towns where literally nothing happens anymore yeah it's it's sad but I have to say um, I'm proud of the town because it has done a lot to revitalize itself and it is it is improving so anyway um, music was quite big in the community and, uh, you know, I grew up with a, a church background and music was massive in the churches. And, and my family were all kind of amateur musicians, really keen amateur musicians, whether they sang in the church choir or played an instrument in the, the town uh, wind band. Um, so music was kind of thriving in the community at an amateur level. How good is it? Because my impression of America and musicianship is... Even at amateur level, they're absolutely brilliant because they just do it all the time. 
It, it certainly used to be that way. It certainly used to. Not so much to. anymore then. I don't know. I, I couldn't say. I've lived away for a while now. But uh, anyway, I, I had that uh, background, backdrop to my life. And so um, I was singing from a really early age. And I sort of loved, you know, trying my hand at performing in front of people. And I had that opportunity, say, in church or whatever. Basically a, a show off. Uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose. If you ask my family, they might say that, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I started singing and I love that. And I started piano lessons and, um, I found that really piano was kind of difficult. I didn't take to it naturally. Um, I did it because I loved music, but, um, we didn't have a piano. My grandmother had a piano though. My grandmother who was literally the grandmother who lived through the woods. So I would go, yes, yes. Just to red on. Isn't that I, oh, I know. It's, it's all falling together. So, yeah, to practice a piano, I had to walk uh, to my grandmother's house and... <laughs> through the woods. Through the woods. You're, you're making this up, Jean. Come on. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> you had to walk through the roots in red. Yeah. But she really needed help with the housework. So when I got there, I couldn't just go and sit down and practice the piano. I had to dust and wash dishes. Did, and... did you meet anyone on the way? No, no, no. No, well, it, was, it was all of a, 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 a 90 second walk, really. So it, it wasn't very far. Um, so practicing the piano meant lots of chores in the house. So you can imagine I wasn't so keen to go practice the piano all the time, but I still did it. Anyway, I found that rather difficult. And then I got old enough where um, in the you know primary school or elementary school, as they call it, we had the option to take up a, a, an instrument to play in the band. And we were to, we got this little instrument demonstration as you get, and and we put down our top three choices, and so clarinet was my first choice. But I knew that we didn't have much money, so I was going to have to use a borrowed instrument, something the school already owned. And I suppose flute was my second choice, um, just because I think it was a girl's instrument or something. And then I thought, okay, I have to be realistic here because I have to use an instrument the school owns. What do they? actually have left you were thinking this what age were you nine wow that's incredible for a nine-year-old <laughs> so i put down french horn and um the 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 band director or the, the sort of the music man he he spoke to me after and he said well you know we don't we don't have any clarinets we don't have any flutes we don't we do have a couple of french horns but honestly i think you'd be really good for clarinet so I'm going to lend you mine, and I will give you lessons. Now, my first clarinet teacher was a tuba player, um, and I did. I worked for, with him for uh, a little over three years. No difference between the tuba and the clarinet. Now, actually, he was pretty good at teaching himself all those instruments. He did a he did a really good job, and so I got a solid foundation, I would say. He's still alive? No, sadly, he passed away a few years That's back. I was just thinking about. At fifty percent listenerships in America, so you go be a wee bit careful what you're saying here, you know. I I, I know. I, um, if anybody that knows me from those days, they will know who I'm talking about exactly. So that's early days. <clears throat> I really took to clarinet. It just it just felt. It's because it was. Um, it really mimicked singing, and it felt like an instrument I could actually express myself on. I could actually do some talking through my instrument, whereas piano is so external, and I, you know, it's, the hands have to do these different things, whereas with clarinet, the two hands combine to do, to do a singular thing. So I, I really took to clarinet, and I, I enjoyed practicing it quite hard and um i will, I will just kind of carry on forward you know i i got quite serious about it and um decided i wanted to try doing that and did your mum and dad encourage you or were they a little worried that you were taking it too seriously and that's a serious question no no um it was I, it was encouraged, definitely encouraged. I would say the the thing that was annoying about my musical activities to my folks was probably when I had, um, you know, kind of an all state or an all district concert that was away from home. And, you know, they kind of had to go somewhere. <laughs> they had to get in the car and drive 
30 minutes or an hour. That was the annoying bit. Um, but they were, they were encouraging because um, they all respected people that made music. You know, it was a respectable uh, thing to do. And it's something that they could relate to as well. And yeah, I think something they were pleased that I was doing. And to be honest, I'm not sure any of us had a vision of what being a professional musician would actually entail or look like, except I knew that the professional musicians I knew were the music teachers. So it seemed the logical progression of things that I would, I guess, become a, a music teacher. So that's what I <clears throat> went to uh, music school for. I started in music education as a degree. And then it wasn't for a couple of years that I heard about these things called performance degrees. I thought, well, what's that all about? Is this in Indiana? This was at University of Massachusetts at Amherst. You know, I saw these other people doing performance degrees and I thought, huh, I wonder if I could do that. And I mean, I felt like I was playing at that kind of level. So I talked to my teacher about it and he said, yeah, absolutely. In fact, what it means is your lessons are worth a few more credits and you, you, could, you could continue your music education degree and to get the music performance degree. So that's what I did. I decided I wouldn't stop being a music education major, that I would carry on with that. And so um, I had to learn, you know, the basics of a few other instruments. And in fact, one of those instruments was guitar. Wow. Well, you know, um, you have to be able to accompany simple songs, I suppose. And I felt the guitar is brilliant. It's portable, you know. Um, and my dad played guitar a little bit. Okay. A few chords, you know, so um, I learned a few more and that opened up some more songs and more possibilities. Give me a few lessons to be fair. I doubt it, no. <laughs> so did your dad still play? I think he could probably still pick it up and, and play, play his tunes, play a few chords, meander around a little bit. Um, a few... Uh, two, three, four chord songs, you know, I'm sure you could manage those. Um, that's about what I was up to is about, you know, three, four chord songs that a push five chords. But uh, anyway, yeah. So I, I was uh, carting my guitar around for a little while, which is sort of hilarious. But I, I did, I used it to accompany classroom singing and even some uh, choir singing and yeah. <laughs> so, so where were you at this, this point, Jean? I was still in Massachusetts, still finishing Massachusetts, yeah. music education degree. I have to say, this is a story that will, it might bring a tear to your eye. I don't know. No, it's not a sad one, is it? Wrong reason. I really, uh, the last day of my student teaching, uh, elementary school, these primary, primary school kids, it was tough. I hats off to teachers. Oh my goodness, you know, classroom control and actually teaching them something, which actually I, I felt I was doing. I felt I was doing a pretty good job, um, really teaching them something meaningful. But that last day was a celebration and I was so excited to get in my car and drive away and, and actually knowing that I now began my summer and I didn't have to go back. I had, I was putting all the things in the car and I put the guitar on top of the the roof of the car. And drove off. And I drove away. And I heard behind me, gadong, gadong, gong, gong, gadong, gong, gong. And that was the poor guitar. And that's the last time anyone saw it alive. You know, it survived. Really? Well, I'll tell you, there is a fantastic guitar player <laughs> called Mike Nisbet. I don't know if you know Mike, but he's a, an amazing guitar player, wonderful guy. And he, he lives down uh, in the Scottish borders with his wife, who's a doctor, as it happens. Don't know why I'm telling you that. Just for the folks around the world, just to paint the picture. Anyway, Mike takes his guitar out that he loves. He loves this specific guitar. It's worth a fortune. He puts it down behind the guitar and then forgets about it and reverses over it. <laughs> It's just, you know, and, and there's so much, with your guitar, they managed to salvage it. I don't think they could salvage this. It's just, it's just destroyed. And it's one of those things that when he told me at the next gig, because we were in a band together, and you can't help but laugh. You know what I mean? It's a tragedy. But yeah. I put my guitar in the case behind the car, and then I reversed over it. Oh. 
it's dreadful. Isn't it? Oh, it's, it's terrible. Like people falling. You can't help but laugh. I don't know what it is about people falling and laughing. What did it? What is it about guitars getting destroyed that's so funny? <laughs> well, how bad was it? It didn't break the neck. I take it. No, it only had a, it had a minor scratch on the back of the body. That's amazing. What was it made out of? Metal. Teflon. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still play the guitar, Jean? No, uh, no, I have one. Uh, it's not mine in this case. Um, I think my, my guitar got bequeathed on to somebody else. So, um, But uh, my husband, Stephen, has a guitar, and it's in the living room right now with a little rainbow strap. Yep. So after that, what happened next? I went to Indiana to uh, begin a master's degree. Um, IU is a huge school. It's the largest music school in the world. And there were, um, I think in total, something like 1,600 music majors at, at once. And That's in the- A lot of egos in one area. Well, I know. And in the clarinet department alone, I think there were 70 clarinet majors. Um, so I was going in there as a graduate student. I was also, I was the associate instructor uh, of clarinet, which um, was quite an honor because I think I was the first master's student, student that they ever gave that associate instructorship to. So I was told, uh, you know. Wow, you're, you're the Pat Matheny of clarinet. It's an incredible journey, really. Um, I really couldn't go anywhere that didn't give me money. So I got into other places, but um, I really needed the money and I needed to have full tuition and I needed even to have that stipend that came with being an associate instructor. And I knew I had played a, a really good audition and I thought I had something I could barter with. And I asked, they said, do you have any questions for us? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> I said, I've heard about this associate instructor of clarinet and I was wondering about that and they kind of went oh well usually you know that's given to doctoral students and uh, we I don't think we've ever given it to a master's student before and I said well that would get me through the door and uh, look at you uh, well I I knew I, I was taking a risk I was taking a risk but that must have made some kind of impression because um, they gave it to me and so I had a studio of about uh, 10 or 11 students. And yeah, it was, it was a great honor. I was listed on the faculty next to these incredible names. Um, there was my teacher, uh, Ellie Abon, um, James Campbell and Howard Klug, all with, you know, massive reputations. And also um, uh, someone I also studied with, Alfred Prince, who was the former principal clarinet of the Vienna Philharmonic um, and he's, he's since he's passed away in the last few years but um, this was huge to be actually listed as faculty with these names was like unfathomable. How did that work out? I mean did you find any attitudes from students? No actually. What, the age, what was the age here? You, you'd be what age? Uh, I would have been 22, I suppose. The students would be 18 then? Yeah, there's a fair amount of trust that goes into something like that. But to be fair, the students that I, I got, um, they were off. I had music, some music education majors. I had some composition students who were also keen to continue their clarinet studies. So um, people who were in in clarinet performance were probably with one of the uh, one of the famous names but um but i did have music majors so that was quite an honor and it's obvious from the very beginning you had you had a talent that you've worked and, and realized do you think people actually can get better than the original talent they had or is it just is it just something that you're born with What's your feeling on that? I know a lot of talented people. I know some unbelievably talented people who don't work. I think it's it certainly helps to have some natural instincts. Like it certainly helps to have an instinct for how to speak through your instrument. But that is not the end all be all because you actually have to get really bloody good at that instrument. You know, you have to be a master of that machine. And so you can be really talented and have all this kind of drama and instinct and sensitivity in you. But if you don't work really hard, I don't think you're going to be a professional, a 
performer, at least in at least in classical music. You know, I I I don't think it's gonna work. <laughs> you know, you've got to work really hard. So I know some people who hard worked themselves into fantastic careers. You know, people who I know people who were late bloomers who you thought actually you know it was wrong to dismiss them. Uh, or think, well, they're not really going to be someone I have to... Surely someone like you wouldn't have thought those things? Never, never. But, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm humbled. You know, I see, I see what can happen. And now I believe in that for my students, too, that maybe, maybe the day will come. I mean, I think I was a late bloomer in some ways. You know, I didn't have access to some of the things that uh, rich kids had in Boston. You know, kids who were going into playing in the Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra. There was no way despite what level I was playing at, that I was going to have that opportunity and therefore that kind of education. So I really didn't have a clarinet teacher through high school. I was self-taught. I just listened to recordings and tried my best to imitate it. So it wasn't until, until uh, yeah, well, actually, <laughs> yeah. Um, it wasn't until university that I really had serious teaching. And it wasn't really until, you know, even later that I got more into pedagogy and really getting into the nitty gritty of how the instrument plays its most efficiently. But I should, um, I should I'll go back to my lineage a little bit because it, it is kind of, in I think it's maybe interesting. After Indiana or during Indiana, I also spent my summers at Aspen and at Aspen. Um, Colorado, right? Yeah, yeah. That's where the skiing is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You were skiing all through the summer, yeah? No, no. Summer music festival. Great festival. They, they sort of call it the Juilliard of the West. And I was introduced to a conductor, the conductor of the uh, Singapore Symphony. And um, he asked if I, he had heard a little bit about me and he asked if I might go and play some orchestral excerpts and a bit of this and a bit of that for him because they were looking for uh, an associate principal clarinetist in the orchestra. He had just taken over being the, uh, the conductor there, the music director there, after having been the associate um, conductor in the Detroit Symphony. And um, my teacher uh, at Aspen, Theodore Owen, was the principal clarinet of the Detroit Symphony. So there's a bit of a connection there. Anyway, he asked if I might go play for him in his, you know, well, hotel room. It's sort of old school. It's the way you, I don't, don't, it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny. Well, it was. Actually, the sad thing is it, it actually was disastrous. No, not like that. Um, <laughs> the poor guy had it. He, he fell off his bicycle. We'll get there in a minute. I, met, I was there waiting. You know, I was so prepared. I practiced so hard. All these pieces, orchestral extracts and Mozart concerto and all from memory. And I was so ready. And he didn't show up. And I waited and I waited and I waited and waited some more. And then I went down to the lobby and I said, is Maestro Lan Shui around? Oh no, he's in the hospital. <laughs> and well, that's what I thought. And I thought, oh, okay, I, that's terrible. I, I guess I guess I'll just go home. <laughs> and I got a phone call. Did, did you do that um, thing with Alan Partridge where you get his hand and you get him to sign the contract even though he's not conscious? <laughs> should have thought of that um well the poor guy he had he had cycled into a bollard as you do yeah and he he ended up with a really bad head injury i know probably the only reason i have a job a bollard for? i know i know the poor guy and he phoned me up and he said i'm so sorry i wasn't there i i had this accident and he's and i said oh my god i'm so sorry are you okay I think so. <laughs> he wasn't sure, but he said, "Could you, could you come tomorrow, and we'll try again?" <laughs> so I turned up the following day, and there he was with this massive head bandage all around. <laughs> it's not funny. I bet you were <laughs> trying to stay full of laugh. I wasn't then. I wasn't then. It's a bit like the guitar thing, you know, all these misfortunes, you know. No. I really, I, I was like, oh my God, are you sure you even want to be doing this? Like, can you even bear listening to the clarinet? So I played for him and he, he was very uh, enthusiastic. And um, 
I was invited to the final round audition and that was blind behind a screen. So I went out to Singapore for this audition and it went well um, and I waited for the result and the orchestra manager came out and uh, said, um, I came to say congratulations. Did they do it like X Factor where we would link to... Yeah, no. <laughs> so did they pay for you to go out there? They did. Oh, right. With the stipulation that if I decided I wasn't going to take it, I'd have to pay them back, which I was never going to be able to afford. So basically I had to decide, am I going to do this or not? So I was a wee bit crestfallen there because you said you went to his hotel room and uh, played the clarinet for him and mm. then you found you had to go to another audition. Did you know that before you went to the... That would have been, I, I think it would have been strange any other way. That, it would have been... Yeah, so, I mean, it was fair to compete in a final round with other players um, behind the screen. So um, I was I was told, um, the, the principal clarinet, the section leader, would like to meet you. And so I went and I knocked on this door. Okay. And he said, yeah, hello. And I, I opened the door and I said, I said, hello, are you Ma uh, uh, And he said, I, yes, who, who are you? And I said, well... Uh, I, I've just been successful in the audition and uh, I've been offered the job. Oh, he was very surprised to see a young, I think a, a young 20 something blonde woman standing there. I don't know what he was expecting or maybe, maybe he would have been surprised by anybody. I don't know. Maybe but he had some skin in the game and wanted someone else. I, I don't think so. I, I don't know. I don't think so. We'll, we'll say no. Yeah. We'll say no. We'll be charitable. Will be charitable, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So that was that. that. How long did that gig last for then? Seven and a half years. That's all right. I only meant to go out for two years, but the you know Southeast Asia has a way of being really intoxicating. Well, I I loved it. You know, I really I loved it, and uh, I had some great opportunities there, great experience for a while. I also uh, sat up um, playing, you know, acting principal for a while. Um, so I, I learned so much. I was really young and I learned so much being there. And I knew it wasn't a forever thing for me that I still had aspirations. Um, I ended up meeting my husband out there. You couldn't make this up. Uh, we played Rhapsody in Blue together. <laughs> I know it's, it's such a almost it's a cliche very, very romantic. is cute yeah so um we started traveling back and forth that was getting tiring we just decided that we had to kind of make a make a decision are we going to do this or not and so um yeah so we we got married and i moved to scotland and that was really scary because i had no idea when i was gonna work again so I had to stick my neck out a bit, and this was weird because things had always fallen on my head. I never really had to ask for anything. Thing people asked me for things, and so this is the first time I had to say, uh, "Can I play for you, or maybe consider hiring me for freelance in the orchestra, or whatever?" So did you find the, the attitude over here? Is that a bit well, of a closed shop? I, as a yes. It would be uncharitable of me to say it was a closed shop as... You're in that shop. As, as, as those orchestras have given me a lot of very nice opportunities. So um, it maybe just took a, a little longer. Um, but actually, people were mostly very warm to me. Um, so it didn't take long, I, um, you know, we, in the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, there's a, a brilliant Spanish clarinetist, uh, Maximiliano Martin, little shout out to him, he's absolutely brilliant. Um, I went and played for him, <laughs> bless him, he brought out this book of extracts and he sort of just started turning pages, okay, that one, that one, that one. <laughs> I, see, and, I see what he was doing there. Yeah, and... Um, and he's like, oh, what had you been doing? And I told him what I'd been doing in Singapore. He's like, oh, so you're a first player. I said, yeah. You should, yeah. You should have grabbed up some music and said, that one, <laughs> that one. <laughs> no, what it did mean was that he invited me in to cover for himself. And that happened pretty quickly. So 
I mean, that's kind of, that's really generous and really extraordinary. And, and then the other orchestras also started accepting me in and, you know, second clarinet playing turned into first clarinet playing. And Do you always feel in the classical world that you're under the microscope? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because it's from an improvisational point of view, you're, by definition, you're kind of making it up. And, and what that's about is the core musicality within you, whether it's good or bad. But you're reproducing um, things which have been done before, some, I'm sure, to a very high standard. And that kind of sets the bar, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You really have to be flawless, I, I think. Still more important than being flawless is communication. You know, that's still, saying something is still more important than, uh, you know, it, it, it has to be somehow, uh, communicating has to be more important than being utterly, utterly flawless. But I will say, in the orchestra, when you have a solo, you've got those bars to show your stuff. And if you have one little blip, that's it, you've had a bad night, you know. And that's what I find so frightening, I guess, about the classical world. And, and I did actually do some, a light classical thing, which uh, I, I know I'm talking to you as if the people out there will know him, but probably won't, should do. Roddy Long was, was involved. Okay. It was just some guy from London had put together this thing. I did it and I had to memorise 35 minutes worth of music. But that's kind of lonely when you're there with 35 and minutes of music. Because then what I found, I don't know if you ever found this, you start doubting that you actually know what you know. Yeah. Does that ever happen to you or is that just not... not um, there are times, yeah. Of course, moments of self-doubt creep in here and there. In terms think, of oh, memory. Huh? In terms of memory. In terms of memory, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> sometimes I feel like you're only... You know, it could either be great or and fantastic, or you could miss out an entire page. <laughs> is that what the adrenaline rush is all about? Not for me. I don't play from memory that often. Um, you know, I've, I've moved somewhat away from orchestral playing. I've really wanted to, one of my dreams was to make a, a career for myself as more of an independent musician. Um, so I've since formed a, a trio, a clarinet, viola, and piano, that's done really well. Um, it's great. It's really exciting. I love it. I wanted to go into all this because you're in quite a few different, well, you were in a few different ensembles and that. Are you still working with all of those ensembles or is it just mainly metamorphosis that you're looking at? Yeah, metamorph metamorphosis is my baby now. It, it's uh, a group I put a lot of energy into. In fact, we're about to make a documentary. Wow. Yeah, before I spoke with you today, I was on a Zoom chat with the members, the, the other people in the trio, and a film producer, because we're having a work commissioned for us by uh, Theo Lovendi, who's a real heavyweight Dutch composer, um, he, who's about to turn 90, and he's written, uh, we commissioned him to write us a piece, and so... Um, yeah, so the, the documentary is going to be, uh, to some extent, about him and us putting together this new work, but also about other uh, Dutch music, um, you know, promoting Dutch art in the, in the UK to some extent. So amazing, unbelievable musician, not some many amazing musicians. So what's it going to be called, Race Against Time or something like that? <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be called. Probably not that. Okay. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, so anyway, um, yeah, I, I do a lot of recital work now. And, and what you were saying about the conductor, yeah, your control is somewhat taken away. You know, your, your own voice, the way you want to say something is somewhat stifled. And it, it has to be, you know, because the conductor has an overriding umbrella for the whole vision and you fit into that. Being more of an independent artist i just i really love you know having more say on the the production end the artistic uh, and um you so know being you able see within that if you come to something as the the lead soloist are you able to influence the do you have a time where you can chat with the conductor and actually influence the arc overall arc of the music and how it's 
put together? Yeah, I, I think to some extent, yeah, yeah, definitely. When I've uh, when I've done concertos, yeah, there is a discussion about that and a sharing of ideas. So I think um, probably it, it ends up being kind of fifty-fifty when you're doing a concerto. Um, when you're when you just have a solo in the orchestra, unless it's a real cadenza, it, you know you kind of have to fit into a window of uh, you know what the parameters are. But um, that's why I just I love recital playing and uh, chamber music playing so much because it's it's more portable. You know we can just bring our music to people without the need for a grand space necessarily. Although that's nice too, <laughs> we have that as well, thankfully. But yes, I, when now when I do choose to take on an orchestral gig, I think oh, I'm gonna have to follow a conductor again. You know, oh, I feel so out of control. Ah. But uh, <laughs> tell me more about. Let's see if I can actually say it right this time. Completely embarrassed myself earlier. Metamorphosis. Did I get it right? That'll, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, well, just just tell me all about it. What's the? I mean, you basically want to lead uh, uh, an ensemble. You get to that point in your life where you want to be in control, but can we ever really be in control, Jean? No, no. <laughs> um, I would say it's a really great collaboration, and I don't see myself as the the supreme leader <laughs> by any means. Uh, if only they could see your haircut as well. <laughs> Just like Kim Il-Yoon. <laughs> Not at all. She's got lovely long blonde hair, folks. Well, it's long because of lockdown. I yeah. haven't been to the hairdressers. Yeah. You see, mine, uh, I've, I've not, my hair's all fallen out. It's because <laughs> it's so long. That's why it's falling out honest. Okay, that's what I'll say. Um, the pianist is a Russian woman who lives in Spain. The viola player is a, a Dutch guy who lives in Zvola. And then there's me, who American is... in Scotland. That's fantastic. Well, I'm British now. I'm British. Are you? I'm British. You got, you got, you yeah. have to swear allegiance to the Queen? I, d I took the oath. Yeah, I, I I've never done that. I don't think I ever could. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, it wasn't... I didn't swear allegiance to the Queen, but I did take an oath. Right. I think I'll probably have a red dot on my forehead at some point, having just said that. But there you go. <laughs> this will be proof that I was taken out and part of the conspiracy. Right, anyway, um, it's interesting, you were talking about the old uh, pandemic. Ah, uh, yeah. How has that affected you in all ways? How have you got through it? What's your feelings? Uh, I have continued teaching clarinet online, and I also, um, I, I, teach, I teach fitness classes online as well. That's a guideline of mine. Um, in fact, during this pandemic, I accidentally started a business, but we'll talk about that later maybe. How have I gotten through it? Well, to, the way it started was I was on tour with the trio in Spain, and it was scary already. I was scared to go there. But where I was going in Galicia, the numbers of things were, it was very low and still relatively low risk. But I was in a hustle to get out and the different councils, if you will, the mayors basically said, that's it. No more public meetings. And so that cut our tour off in half. And even, even as it was going on, people were kind of afraid to, to come to the concerts. So... So I ended up in a situation where they were going to, like, there was talk of them stopping flights and all this stuff, and I was, like, scrambling to get out. So that it cut my concerts off, and I had all this work in the diary. I had loads of work in the diary, um, work with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, work with the RSNO, work with, you know, uh, other recitals, uh, you know, Seattle Chamber Music Festival. I was going to fly. I was supposed to be a guest lecturer out in Alabama. Uh I had all this stuff that was supposed to happen and just, boom, just vanished. All that income. But I will say, thankfully, you know, hats off to some of the arts organizations. They didn't just leave the people high and dry. You know, all the orchestras I was hired with, they still offered something. You know, they still would if they, 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 most of them paid the full fee. Um, and... In other situations, I got things like half fee for this or that, things that, you know, they're paying me for not doing it, which was incredibly generous. National Youth Orchestra of Scotland, I mean, they were so good to us. 
I mean, it, it, it was touching. It was really, you know, I really felt something about that, how we were looked after, how we were cared for. But I suppose that can only go on for so long. Then, then there are no more engagements for people to pay you for even half fees, you know. So how have I been coping? I would say that this little, um, not little, but this fitness club I started has become a little bubble of friends and a little community that means an awful lot to me. It's so much more than just working out over Zoom. It's, um, you know, you, you meet with people that you're so happy to see their faces. You used to see them face to face. And at least now you have still some contact, regular contact with these people, even if it's online um but it's still a bit of a business or just a, a get together with friends it's well i i am really a, a hobbyist but part-time professional fitness instructor i mean that is a real thing i when i moved to scotland i didn't have much in the diary so i went and got a diploma uh right away in like group group fitness uh exercise to music and um, personal training and stuff like that because it was something that was an interest of mine and i just took it that step further yeah and and i started to get hired to teach classes at some of the leisure centers and so i ended up with seven regular classes a week all during kind of non-musicy times and and if something did conflict there were loads of people that could cover my classes for me if i needed them to but um what happened was COVID happened and i didn't want to go into the clubs anymore i was getting scared and and they didn't seem to be shutting things down fast enough for my liking so i told my class because we, we still chat online. And, and I said, look, I'm not going in tonight. I have cover. So the class is on. If you want to go to it, it's there. I said, however, if you're feeling scared like me, I'm still going to lead the class. I'll just, I'm going to try to do it online and we'll see how it goes. Well, I told a friend of mine I was doing this and she felt much like I did. And she has a different skill set than me. So between us, we thought, you know, we could actually do something with this because the gyms are going to close. So we were among the first people that I know of anyway to, we put together a weekly timetable of classes, all different stuff, because she does different things than me. And um, we started doing it on a, we've been doing it on a donation only basis. Like if you can and you want to pay something, okay, we'll make it possible. Because people kept asking, you can't just do this for free. You can't just do this for free. So we said, okay, if you want to make a donation, you can. And people did, they almost all did. And so we've decided now to keep it going. And from the beginning of August, we're going to move to a formal pay structure. So we have uh, kind of accidentally started a fitness club with 150 members. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. How did that happen? It's, it's, even I'm kind of going like, I can't believe that really. Did I just, how'd that happen? Anyway. So, Jean, you do sound like... Some people um, haven't been taking the COVID thing that seriously. You, you oh, no, I'm you, quite neurotic about it. Don't worry. Yeah, you, you've been really quite panicky. Y yes, I I, um, I take it very seriously. I mean, if you have, I feel like I kind of understand how viruses spread. And if you think about that. <laughs> well, um, yeah, even when I was teaching one-to-one -one lessons at home, you know, we should, this is another, this is a whole other lecture really, because, because they found that the aerosol isn't really as much as it might seem like coming out of wind instruments, but never mind, never mind. The concept of it for me, just the thought of all that kind of condensation, it didn't sit well with me. So yeah, clarinet lessons went on to online right away. Even at the best of times, I distanced from my students because I don't want their snot-nosed colds either because I still can't play my instrument. Even with just a boring old cold virus, it's, you know, career interrupting. You know, when you're in Spain, would it be fair to say that you're worried also about your audience? Because is the audience predominantly older? Well, sure. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, Gosh, this virus is really bad, and anyone can... The reason I'm asking that is, taking that as the, the sort of demographic of the, the audience, in, in a wider sense, 
Mm. What does that say about getting back to some sort of normality? Yeah, you have to... Con- yeah. Yeah. We have to stay alive for this to be worth a damn, don't we? You know? It would be I, preferable. I, yeah. yeah you many can't... people would be glad to see the back of me, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have to all stay alive to make any progress happen at all. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things that our group, my trio, is really keen on is sort of audience building and reaching new audiences and being relevant and and of the day, um, being cross-cultural, multicultural. These are important things in reaching younger people, younger audiences. Do you know, I mean, with with all this social media, you might argue you've got a better chance of reaching younger people where they live in some ways. I don't know. So I, I've just started up, uh, this isn't about me, but I'm just going to briefly say a thing called GMI Live, which it has made quite a bit of investment from me, but fundamentally I'm live streaming and the... Uh, the tech, getting your head around the technology is unbelievable. Uh, so you're basically a one-man TV show. But yeah. I, think, I think that's going to be huge. And interestingly, I'm hopeful to have, seeing I've got a slew of these um, wonderful interviews with talented people like yourself, I'm talking to a guy, hopefully on Monday, who's all about live streaming. He's also uh, interested in music. I, I don't know what his musical background is, but... I don't think the world that we're going into is going to be quite the same as the world we came out of, uh, not for quite some time. And I think uh, there's so many, for me, paradoxes and hypocrisies that go on. You know, on one hand, we want to save the planet, but on the other hand, we're always taking holidays (laughs) on planes. So I just wonder how much the whole live stream thing will actually grow. So you might end up going to a centre. I mean, if I had the money, I'd build it myself. But it's got five cameras lined up. The whole thing's hardwired in, and you go in and and do your performance. In some ways, monetized, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Patreon or something. Uh, my trio is looking into what kind of what you're talking about. And um, I did a live stream a few weeks ago. Um, Chamber Music Scotland was very generous in offering uh, Stephen and I uh, a live stream concert. Yeah, we got a little bit of attention through this lockdown just because we're a, we're a legitimate on- ensemble that lives together, <laughs> you know, so... How many ensembles can say that? Yeah, uh, so we got a bit of attention from radio, BBC Scotland, BBC Radio 3, and uh, yeah, the RCS very generously... Uh, had us do a concert, though that wasn't a, a technical live stream, but the Chamber Music Scotland, that was a live stream. Yeah, to feel the thrill of a live concert again, really knowing that people are listening right now, even though there's nobody in front of your face. But um, I definitely felt like, oh, you know, I have to have to be good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun one, isn't it? Because it's a little like radio. You're, you're there, you're doing it. And it's just you and them, but actually there might be hundreds of thousands of people listening to you. But... Well, I know. I know. Uh, yeah. And when I looked at the, the ticker, the, the view count, I was like, oh, oh my God, <laughs> so many people. So, Jean, when do you think, uh, what's your best bet is when you're actually going to start being able to rehearse? Uh, there's no point, as someone said, actually, what's the point of rehearsing when there's nothing to rehearse for? Well, I do at least have a real live concert in the diary uh, on the 7th of October with my trio in Deventer in the Netherlands. And it's the premiere of uh, Theo Lovendi's trio that we commissioned, plus a few other pieces on the program as well. So that's a real live concert. And we were just talking about meeting, you know, when we would meet beforehand to rehearse it. An audience. A distanced audience, yes. Yes. Yeah, about half capacity of the hall. I don't want to be too gloomy, but I think the, the problem with it all is we just don't know. No, we don't. So um, I, I'm going to keep my fingers and toes crossed for your, I'm going to call it band, ensemble, sorry, uh, and hope that that goes ahead. But uh, we live in interesting times. Um, maybe every single person that's ever lived has said that. <laughs> 
I wonder if anyone's ever said, we're living really boring times, by the way. <laughs> yeah, nothing ever happens. But so much has happened in our lives and we're still going on. You're really going to take this to the top? I hope so. We'll do our best. Jean, it's been brilliant talking to you. Such an honour to speak with folk like you who've done so much, who are so talented and are doing so much for music and for people around the world. Thanks for talking to GMI. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. It's been fun. Well, that wraps up another podcast. I hope you enjoyed it half as much as I did actually undertaking it. Jean was fantastic. It was great to hear her story, her concerns about this pandemic, but also just to hear about her extraordinary playing career, which really is top flight. And I wish her all the best with her new ensemble. There's another podcast coming up real soon, slightly different subject, and it's all to do with live streaming. Now, I have been undertaking a live stream, so this is a little bit of an advert at the end, if there's anyone still listening. If you look up for GMI live stream on Twitch, or on our YouTube channel, or indeed on the GMI Facebook page, we're now streaming to all of these places. I'm just pushing out as much material as I can, when I can, and there's lots of free resources. But the next guest will be talking all about live streams, how to do it, and the impact. So, I hope you will join me for that. All that remains, as usual, for me to say is from me, Jed Brocky. Thank you for listening, and hopefully, I'll have your company on the next GMI podcast. Bye for now.